What you're about to hear is the fourth episode of a new History Channel on YouTube called The Pacific War Channel. Now this is a three of a three-part series consisting of the disaster that led to the Opium Wars, the First Opium War, and the Second Opium War. If you like your stories in some sort of linear order, it might be a good idea to listen to the two previous episodes. If that does not bother you, then by all means, enjoy regardless. From 1856 to 1860, this event remains a powerful one that affected West versus East relations to this day. It is somewhat dwarfed by its predecessor, the First Opium War of 1839 to 1842, but it still is one of the most important, impactful events in global history. Please enjoy the Second Opium War. You are listening to the Pacific War Channel's podcast. If you wish to see the video version of these podcasts, go to the Pacific War Channel on YouTube. Well, hello there. Welcome to the Pacific War Channel, the channel where we cover the complete history of the Asia-Pacific War from 1937 to 1945. We are currently looking at major historical events that led up to the Pacific War. Today's episode is going to be on the Second Opium War of 1856 to 1860. So if you're not already subscribed and or left a like and or comment, could you please do so? As you can see, I have quite a hungry bird and she requires many seeds. So if you didn't already see the first episode on the First Opium War of 1839 to 1842, explaining how we got here, you can click on the card above right now. Let's, brief, let's just briefly summarize the situation. The 1842 Treaty of Nanking in many ways was similar to the Treaty of Versailles that ended World War I and paved the grievances that led to World War II. The Treaty of Nanking was humiliating for China, and it was a symbolic and practical surrender of her sovereignty to Britain. The treaty consisted of China paying $21 million to Britain over a three-year period, the release of all prisoners, Hong Kong was now Britain's colony, and Britain could now have permanent residence at the ports of Canton, Amoy, Fuzhou, Ningbo, and Shanghai. This also ended the Canton system, which was a system in which Western countries could only trade within Canton. Last, there was absolutely no resolve for the status of the illicit opium trade, thus greatly favoring Britain as it would continue to thrive. Now, the grand vision of Northern England after the First Opium War was that its mass-produced cotton textiles would penetrate the newly opened Chinese market. This turned out to be a failure. China simply preferred their own homespun silk, cloth to British products. On the other hand, the British couldn't get enough of Chinese silk, and tea, of course. Between the two opium wars, the opium business became known in China as the poison trade. Another business that sprang up was the hiring of Chinese coolies to serve on boats and abroad. This business became known as the pig trade, and the term Shanghai actually came from the fact that most coolies were drugged up and kidnapped, thrown onto overcrowded and filthy ships with such a high mortality rate that half died on their way to work. It's quite awful. Now, not everyone in Britain agreed with this disgusting trade. Many faith networks fought alongside empathetic parliament leaders to combat the pig trade. They secured an enactment called the Chinese Passenger Act of 1855, and while this did not outlaw the trade of coolies, it codified and improved conditions in which they were transported. In 1850, the Daoguang Emperor died, and in his will he begged forgiveness for agreeing to sign the shameful Treaty of Nanking. His fourth son, 
Yangfang succeeded him at the age of 19. Xiaofang was an opium addict and spent almost all of his time with his concubine harem. Two major disasters added to the opium crisis, which ignited the Second Opium War. High government office was originally only obtained by rigorous examinations which guaranteed the competence of the ruling class in China. After the First Opium War, these positions became available to just about anybody with $800. The rich mediocrities came to power as a result, and the once industrious and educated Chinese bureaucracy decayed rapidly. On top of all of this, there was a major overflow in 1856 from the Haonghe River, destroying thousands of acres of rice paddies, and the capital began to starve, leading to rather drastic decisions. As has happened countless times in Chinese history, the decay of the imperial court, combined with famine, led to rebellion. This would be known as the Taiping Rebellion of 1850 to 1864, and I'll actually be covering this event in the next episode in much greater detail. An anti-Manchu revolt by native Chinese populations rose up, and it was almost toppled by the Manchu-run dynasty. The Taiping Rebellion began in the southeastern province of Gangji. The leader of the movement was Hong Jiquan. Hong's family was Hakka, a minority people in southern China with distinctive customs and language that set them apart from mainstream Han and Manchu society. Because remember, China consisted of a variety of people. Hong attempted and um, failed the imperial examination in 1837 for the third time in a row, leading to a complete nervous breakdown. The imperial examinations allowed people to take up positions in government office. In his delirium, he saw visions of an older bearded man with golden hair he called Elder Brother. This man gave him a sword and taught him to slay demons. This man was named Jesus Christ. Now I know all of you probably want to hear so much more about this character, and like I said, the next episode will cover this rebellion more thoroughly. But anyways, Hong was seen as a mystic who turned to Christianity and was extremely antagonistic towards Confucianism. He even attacked their shrines. Hong gathered converts, many of which were fellow Hakka. However, many triad organizations hoping to restore the old Ming dynasty joined his cause as well. Hong's radical forces were called the God Worshippers, and were hated by the Qing government and Westerners. They represented an anti-capitalist force who also bastardized Christianity. The Qing government feared that they would be overthrown by them. The Westerners feared that if the rebels took over, their treaties and trade network would be ruined as a result. By the fall of 1851, the God Worshippers went from a few thousand peasants to over a million troops. Part of their cult was the banning of the opium use, while the Qing armies were suffering from rates of 90% opium addiction. This led the rebels to have an overwhelming military success. Hong took Gangji, attacked Hunan, and even took Nanking. It was in Nanking where it seems Hong and his commanders got a little soft and settled down enjoying the city for over a decade. Now, in order to combat the rebels, the emperor hired Mongol mercenaries commanded by Prince Sanglunqin, hope I pronounced that right, who we will call Sang from this point on. This was a huge gamble as the Mongols once ruled China and Sang was known to have pretensions to the Manchu throne. 
The gamble paid off, however, as the rebel infantry was no match for the Mongol riders. The Mongol armies stopped the rebels from threatening the capital of Peking, and this led the rebellion to do guerrilla warfare. We will now continue with the story of the Second Opium War, but also take into consideration this rebellion is occurring in the background the entire time. On February 1856, a French priest, Abbe Auguste Chapdelaine, was converting some Chinese in a village called Zilin in the remote province of Gangji. Unfortunately for Chapdelaine, the Taiping rebels took over Gangji and made it a resistance sanctuary. Chapdelaine was arrested and imprisoned put in a cage set up in the village square. He was deemed in violation of Chinese law, and the Manchu authorities seemed to think that he was part of the God-worshippers. Ironically, Chapdelaine and other Catholics hated the God-worshippers because they were a bastardized proto-Protestant creed of rebels. The poor priest was beheaded on February the 20th, 1856, dismembered and eviscerated. The French press went on to claim that the Chinese cut out his heart and ate it, Historians believe this is just an urban myth, however. Um, France obviously was enraged, and the French representative in Canton, the Comte de Croissy, sent furious letters to the city's viceroy, Yi Mingchen. Yi knew the French had no stomach to fight, and chose to insult them by replying that the atrocity occurred because of a case of mistaken identity. He said that Chapdelaine dressed and spoke like a Chinese, so nobody knew that he was French. <laughs> The British would also encounter a major problem. On October the 8th, 1856, a Lorcha ship named Arrow was transporting rice from Macau to Hong Kong when it was seized by a Chinese war junk. You see, the Arrow was registered as a British vessel, thus giving in the special access to some ports, but its entire crew was in fact Chinese. Like many other vessels, there was a British figure, head captain, Mr. Thomas Kennedy in this case, his presence on board protected the vessel, but on October the 8th, he was having dinner with another captain on another ship nearby. The Chinese authorities boarded Arrow and arrested her crew, bounding them and taking them aboard their war junk. It turns out a few of the Chinese crewmen were previously pirates, and the authorities knew about it. Mr. Kennedy protested all of this, of course, stating that the ship was in fact British registered vessel and that they could not do this. Mr. Kennedy ran to the help of the British consul, Harry Parks. Parks rallied against the authorities, saying it was a gross insult and violation of national right that the Chinese had committed, stipulating the Treaty of Nanking that required the Chinese ask permission of the British consul before arresting a Chinese citizen serving under a British registered ship. Parks did not, however, check the registration. It turns out it had expired. Regardless, he deemed the crew to be handed over immediately. The Chinese commander explained that he could not hand them over, knowing that a few of them were pirates and they needed to be further interrogated. Parks refused to accept the situation and asked the governor of Hong Kong, Sir John Boring, to seize the Chinese war junks that had commandeered the arrow. On October the 14th, the British gunboat Coromandel took the Chinese vessel without a fight and towed it to Wampao. Yu Mingchen ignored the incident, trying not to provoke the British. At this point, Boring had a chance to inspect the registration of the arrow, which Parks did not bother to do so and figured out that it had thus been expired, and the Chinese were in fact not in violation of the treaty at all. 
Uh, despite this discovery, Boring was determined to goad Yi Ming Chen anyways and demanded the entire crew be handed over with a public apology within 24 hours. Yi returned the crew but refused to apologize, pointing out how the British were in fact wrong. Yi's sly remarks seem to have given Parks and Boring an excuse for hostilities. On October the 23rd, Parks ordered Rear Admiral Sir Michael Seymour to seize and destroy four barrier forts south of Canton. Two of the forts fired back at the British fleet before surrendering, and five defenders died. They would, in fact, be the first deaths of the Second Opium War. Seymour's easy victory inflamed Parks' war fever, and he sent word to Yi on October the 25th, demanding the British be allowed to enter Canton, or else they would bombard the city. On October the 28th, the steamer Encounter shelled the rooftop of the vice-regal residence. Yi responded with a bounty price on the British heads of over $100. Within a day of bombardment, the British had blown a hole in Canton's walls. A force of sailors and marines poured through the hole on October the 29th, with the British planting the Union Jack on top of the wall. Oddly enough, even though the U.S. was officially neutral during all of this, one American envoy to Hong Kong, a James Keenan, was seen waving the Star and Stripes during the fort's attack, apparently visibly drunk. The British began to shell Yi Ming Chen's palace through the hole in the wall, but soon pulled out as they did not have nearly enough men to hold the city. Yi then sent word to Parks with an offer of truce, but Parks refused and instead made vague remarks about allying, allying himself to the god worshippers. It was, of course, a bluff. The British saw the, saw the rebels as Jacobins and preferred to deal with the Qing dynasty. Now, in the meantime, the British continued the siege on Canton and attacked Chinese warships in the Gulf while also destroying local forts in the area. By November, trade had evaporated because of the siege, and our old friend Hao Kuang and other members of the Kohang merchants faced financial ruin. They tried to appeal to Parks and Boring, but it was to no avail. In December, Yi mistook the British lack of manpower for a lack of resolve and ordered the destruction of the western factories within the city. Yi's generous bounty of British heads led to an atrocity on December the 29th. The Chinese crew aboard Thistle, which carried mail from Hong Kong to Canton, mutinied and beheaded 11 European passengers. The heads were brought to Yi for the $100 reward. This pressed Seymour to telegraph Britain of all the incidents that were occurring. The arrows and the thistle incidents provided the fuel for military actions. Bowring asked the Governor General of India, Lord Canning, for reinforcements. He dispatched a full regiment of artillery to Canton on February the 9th, 1857. The foreign minister ordered Seymour to seize the entrance to the Grand Canal, thus cutting off the capital's food supply. The British Parliament debated over the China situation and Bowring's request for reinforcements to invade Canton. The Prime Minister predicted a wholesale massacre of European residents within Canton if the House did not back the war party. This led to the appointment of the popular Scottish and former Governor of Jamaica and British North America, James Bruce. James Bruce was the 8th Earl of Elgin and a direct descendant of Robert the Bruce, and he was going to be the new envoy of China. Lord Elgin held plenipotentiary. This means a diplomat is given full authority by the government. And he was given orders too. 
acquire the right for Britain to send permanent ambassadors to Peking to conduct negotiations directly within the imperial court, demand the opening of new ports for British ships, to force the Chinese to comply with the provisions of the Treaty of Nanking, to use military force as a last resort. He was given joint military command with Lieutenant General Ash Burnham and Rear Admiral Seymour. Now on his way to China, Elgin got word of a new major catastrophe. On May the 10th, 1857, Indian troops of the East India Company Army stationed in Marut had refused to accept orders from their British officers. The entire garrison mutinied, killing the officers, their families, and many other Europeans. As word spread, similar outbreaks occurred within days, and the mutiny had become a wide-scale rebellion. Soldiers were joining the disgruntled Indian princes tired of the British Raj. Britain was in serious danger of losing complete control over its greatest imperial possession, and honestly the foundation of its world power. Elgin arrived in Singapore on June the 3rd with letters from Lord Canning, the Governor-General of India, was waiting for him. Canning was in a crisis and asked for troops to be diverted to help him quell the rebellion. Elgin then sent 700 troops of the 90th Regiment to India immediately. Elgin then traveled to Hong Kong on July the 2nd, 1857. Seymour, Parks, and Boring immediately pressed their new boss for an attack on Canton, which was backed by 85 British opium merchants. Elgin ignored their pleas and pressed for negotiations because he did not want to risk toppling the Manchu dynasty. This could have led to the balkanization of China in which the Taiping rebels could take control. Such circumstances would obviously not be favorable to the British trade. Baron Gros, Elgin's French counterpart in China, arrived a month after he did. Gros wanted to attack Peking instead of Canton, while Elgin still argued for negotiations. In November, William Reed, the new American minister appointed by President Buchanan, arrived aboard steamship Minnesota. He said the position of the United States was to remain neutral in the inevitable conflict. Uh, lastly, Count Euphemus Putitan, I'm sorry for the pronunciation, Russia's emissary, arrived in Hong Kong with minimal firepower. He came uh, with a separate proposal for the emperor involving territorial demands in Manchuria to help deal with the Taiping rebels. Despite his efforts at negotiations, Elgin was eventually forced to give in to his war-hungry allies. December 1857, three ships carrying 2,000 British soldiers from Calcutta sailed into Canton's harbors, followed by the French fleet under Admiral Rigaud de Genie. Elgin and Gross sent Yi Ming-Chin separate ultimatums. France wanted the murderers of the father Chapdelaine brought to justice, reparations, and permission to operate unrestricted anywhere in Canton. The British demanded compliance with the terms and treaties of Nanking, and a permanent ambassador set up in Peking, alongside some unspecified reparations. Yi did not have the authority to satisfy their demands, nor the army to defend Canton. So he sat idle, while eight more British and four more French steamships arrived to add more muscle. On December the 21st, 1857, Elgin, Putantin, and Gros parlayed aboard the Baron's flagship, Audacieuse. They agreed to give Yi one more chance before shelling the city. They gave Yi a five-day deadline, upon which he never responded. So on December the 28th, the British-French ships began to shell the city and its fortified towers. The bombardment went on for a full day, including incendiary rockets. The Chinese responded with only two shells. 
The incendiaries did their job. Canton was burning. 500 French and British soldiers landed, making their way past the rice paddies into a cemetery. The, sold, the Chinese soldiers hid behind tombstones while both sides fired upon each other. The Chinese mostly shot arrows and used gingals against the British rifles. The gingals were so cumbersome, they required two men to fire them, and the recoil knocked them back quite often. At the dawn on the 29th, the Europeans scaled the walls with little resistance. Looting began en masse, and Elgin sent Colonel Lemon with some Royal Marines to the city's treasury, where they seized 52 boxes of silver, 68 boxes of gold ingots, and the equivalent in tales of nearly a million dollars in cash. All of this legal plunder was put aboard the HMS Kolkata and dispatched back to India. Overall, 200 or more Chinese defenders were killed, and the Europeans suffered no more than 15 deaths while taking the city. By January the 5th, 8,000 French and British forces marched through Canton unopposed. Parks personally led a squad to capture Yi, who was trying to flee from his palace. Kuro and Elgin set up Yi's second-in-command, Pinkui, as the new puppet governor of Canton. Pinkui would be advised by a triumvirate of Parks, Captain Matineau, and Colonel Holloway. Yi was sent into exile to Kolkata aboard the Inflexible on February the 20th. Yi lived under house arrest until his death in 1859. It is reported that he starved himself to death. The British and French forces began to increase their position in Canton. By late May, a combined Anglo-French fleet of 26 gunboats prepared to attack the five mud Daku forts that guarded the mouth of the Behe River. D-Day, as it were, was to be May the 20th, 1858, and the emperor was on the verge of fleeing his own capital. The Dagu forts were surrounded by water, forming a natural bottleneck into the Bihi River. The Chinese inaccurately presumed the deep-hulled foreign gunboats would not risk entering the river during the low tide season. Seymour and Rigaud gambled and made a surprise attack at 10 a.m. on May the 20th. The immobile Chinese artillery had been aimed to hit ships at high tide, but the vessels entered during the low tide. Along with the artillery was a seven-inch thick boom made of bamboo blocking the river way. The British sacrificed one ship, Cor Coromandel, which rammed into the boom, destroying it and receiving a gash in its hull. The armada steamed through the gap while the Chinese artillery shot over their masts. The French mitrailleuse and the fusée, along with the British Comorant, fired at two Daku forts on the left bank, while the British Nimrod and French Avalanche and Dragon fired at the three forts on the right. The Chinese had some better luck with their Gengals. Unlike the artillery, they could, in fact, be aimed. Five British and six French were shot dead, and 61 others were wounded by Gengal fire. The Chinese lost over 100 men from the bombardment and rifle fire, however. The ashamed commander of the Dagu forts committed suicide at the Temple of the Sea God by slashing his jugular. With the successful bombardments, eight gunboats made their way up the Beihe River towards the critical stronghold of Tianjin. On June the 4th, 1858, the smaller armada arrived in Tianjin and met no resistance. The defenders, under the rumor that the emperor had fled and been overthrown, were willing to treat with the foreigners. The emperor had not been overthrown and sent commissioners to Tianjin to negotiate. He sent 74-year-old Yuan and 53-year-old Quan Shan, both military seniors. 
Elgin believed the entire campaign had been won and done and shrewdly left his younger brother, Lord Frederick Bruce, to continue negotiations. Please take note that Lord Bruce was nothing like his older brother and was known to be a moron, a complete dimwit. After many weeks of back and forth, the Treaty of Tianjin was finally signed on June 26, 1858. The treaty consisted of the rights of British, French, Russian, and United States to establish small embassies in Peking, the Chinese opening the ports of Yuanzhang, Tamsui, Hongguo, and Nanking to foreign trade, the right of all foreign vessels to travel the Yangtze River freely, the right for foreigners to travel in the interior of China, which was actually forbidden at this time, and for China to pay over 4 million tails of silver to Britain and 2 million to France. You know, it should be noted that the Russians had a separate treaty of Anguin, signed on May 28, 1858. This gave Russia the left bank of the Amur River and parts of the south of the Stanovoy Mountains. Basically, it was just Russia grabbing territory from a week in China, on the side. When the Chinese representatives came back to the emperor with the signed document, he flat out rejected the humiliating terms. Why wouldn't he, right? Elgin's brother, Bruce, returned to London with the Treaty of Tianjin in 1858. Bruce was rewarded with the appointment of the first ambassador to China. Elgin left China in March 1859, thinking his work was done, hoping to retire in London for a while. As Elgin was on his way to London and Bruce was on his way back to China, they met up in Sri Lanka in April. The treaty had been signed by everybody except the emperor and as a result of its compliance, was not going to be met. Uh, this obviously enraged Bruce, uh, who arrived at the mouth of the Beihei River on June 18, 1859, with a force of 16 warships to force the compliance of the treaty by going directly to Peking. The emperor ordered three bamboo boons, three, thick, three feet thick across the Beihei River, to block their armada. On June 25, the viceroy of Chihili province, Hing Fu strongly suggested the European ambassadors meet in Bitang instead of Peking to ratify the treaty. Bruce, enraged by all of this, ordered the ships to bombard the bamboo boons and Chinese cannons laid around them. For a change, the Chinese cannons were better aimed this time. Eight sailors were blown to pieces as they fired back. This is the first time in, uh, in a few episodes I've actually mentioned the Chinese cannons did something. So it's starting to work. By early this evening, five British ships were immobilized and one sank. The British ships were now only past the first boom, facing Chinese guns on both sides of the river. At 7 p.m., as the Chinese fireworks illuminated the sky, Captain Shadwell and 50 Royal Marines and French soldiers under the French commander, Tricot, landed on the mud flats outside of the Daegu forts. The attackers waddled through mud up to their knees under fire from Jingals manned by the fort's defenders. The attack bridges and ladders they brought to scale the forts were completely destroyed in the gunfire. Stuck in mud, Shadwell and his forces were quickly pinned down and they were forced to retreat. The British and the French suffered high casualties. Shadwell was wounded himself and Trikelt was dead. More than 1,000 men were either killed or wounded. On July the 1st, Bruce was informed that another assault on the forts without reinforcements would be impossible and in fact suicidal at this point. To try and save face, Bruce reported to London that the sudden military prowess of the Chinese was because Russians secretly were helping the Chinese at the Daegu forts. Bruce claimed 
that men in fur hats with European dress were observed directing Chinese troops. This, of course, was all fabricated. It's just propaganda. Ironically resembles how the United States initially reported that Germans were commanding the Japanese forces at Pearl Harbor because it was inconceivable that an inferior race could get the better of them. You see the comparisons here. I thought it was a, a good example. The real reason the Dagu forts were so successful this time around was because of Mongol Prince Tseng, who had previously crushed the Taiping rebels. He was in command. As a result of the Dagu fort victory, the Chinese enjoyed a spectacle of Western representatives coming to Peking. The U.S. Ambassador Ward was tricked by the Chinese into traveling in a small wooden cart to Peking in order to humiliate him as a barbarian. The Chinese told him this was how the Russians liked to travel in China, and Ward went through the Kowtow situation and refused to do so until the emperor became angry and sent him away. Ward then went to Peking, where Chinese officials signed the treaty with him on August the 15th, 1859, without the emperor interfering, because the emperor simply would interfere whenever he could. Back in Britain, Elgin argued to Parliament that an attack on Peking would help the god worshippers, and that a better strategy was actually to starve the capital out until they ratified the treaty. Bruce was ordered in April, 16, April 1860 to issue a 30-day ultimatum to the Chinese. The Chinese officials responded quickly for once on April the 5th, 1860, with a straight-out no. The Chinese were emboldened by the Dagu Fort victory and the inaction of the British at this point. It seemed that Bruce was completely out of his depth, and thus Britain replaced him with his older brother Elgin, who then returned to China in late April. Elgin's new orders were to demand for negotiations in the capital, an apology and reparations for the Dagu Fort incident, and of course compliance with the new Treaty of Tianjin. The British received a brand new weapon, the Armstrong field gun. This is impressive. It was a 25-pound gun with the accuracy of a rifle combined with the destructive power of a cannon. It was designed for scattering large armies by, uh, with exploding shells. The French were armed with an outdated Napoleon gun, which was its equivalent. On July the 26th, 1860, 150 British ships and 50 French ships steamed up the northern coast and landed in Bietang, eight miles north of the Dagu forts. From Bietang, a combined force of 1,000 British and 1,000 French traveled four miles en route to Tianjin, where they came across Prince Sang, whose cavalry was blocking the way. Hundreds of Manchus, Chinese, and Mongol cavalry were intimidating, so General James Hope Grant waited to assemble his forces. On August the 12th, 1860, Grant assembled 800 cavalry, which he ordered to go around the flank of the Chinese forces. The main Allied force would attack the defenders head-on with their three new Armstrong guns. When the Allies went within a mile of the Chinese, they began firing their Armstrongs, whose exploding shells scattered and tore the Chinese cavalry just apart. The defenders charged within 450 yards, where their guns would be more effective, creating 25 minutes of pure carnage. The Chinese, in a suicidal fashion, did not stop even as the Sikhs gunned them down with their carbines and pistols. Although outnumbered, the Chinese were forced to flee. The Allied flanking cavalry would have finished them off, but muddy conditions rendered them kind of stuck. The next day, General Hope Grant and French General Dumont-Tubin seized the town of Dangu, which offered them a great position to attack the Dagu forts. 
At dawn on August the 21st, 1860, eight French and British gunships began to shell the Dagu forts while Armstrong's and other artillery were dragged through muddy flats 600 feet from the walls. The combined bombardment quickly knocked out the Chinese guns on the fort walls and the defenders were forced to use gingals and matchlocks. At 6 a.m., a lucky shell hit a powder keg inside the fort, exploding violently. Then French General Collineau forced coolies into the fort's moats with scaling ladders on their shoulders for the French to climb the fort walls. That's horrible. General Hope Grant felt so guilty about the treatment of the coolies, he gave them an extra month's salary bonus. Ugh. Once atop the wall, the French bayonet charged everybody inside. The British blew a hole in the wall and single file marched within. The Mandarin commander of the fort stood his ground rather than surrendering to Captain Prin of the Royal Marines, who quickly shot him with a revolver and then took his peacock feather cap as a trophy of war. Almost 2,000 Chinese lay dead while the British and French both lost around 200 men. The fall of the fort was a psychological blow to the Chinese, who within five hours of surrendering sent two emissaries to negotiate immediately. Unfortunately for the emissaries, they had to deal with British Consul Parks, who was a rage-filled xenophobe. Parks demanded that in the next two hours, the other three Dagu forts must be uh, capitulated or they would suffer the same fate. White flags popped up on all three of the remaining forts, and now the way to Tianjin was open. Hope Grant went with an armada on August the 23rd. Tianjin was laid open without any defense, and Guliang, a senior Mandarin, was sent by the emperor to negotiate with plenipotentiary powers. The new demands were made to the Mandarin official, adding demands for a formal apology for the Dagu forts in 1859 to pay double the original reparation of 4 million taels of silver and to ratify the Treaty of Tianjin. In the meantime, Tianjin would remain under Allied control, allowing them to strangle the flow of food to Peking. The Westerners demanded yet again for a formal audience with the Emperor. This is becoming a broken record at that point. Although Guilang had plenty potentiary powers, he saw the terms to be so unacceptable, so he resorted to the old ruse that he did not in fact have plenty potentiary powers, which contradicted his original claims in the first place. Elgin recognized the old Chinese ploy, stalling tactic, because it had occurred so many times by now that he, he wrote in his diary on September the 8th, 1860, the blockheads have gone on negotiating with me just long enough to enable Hope Grant to bring his entire army up to this point. Here we are at our base, established in the heart of the country, in a capital climate which, with abundance of food around us. Our army is in excellent health, and these stupid people give me a snub which obliges me to break with them. Elkin spoke to Gro, and they both agreed to go up the Beihe River into Peking. The closer they got to Peking, the more the Chinese court officials panicked and sent words to stop, promising all the terms would be met. Elgin, at this point, was too fed up to stop. Meanwhile, the emperor was in a fight-or-flight panic. His generalissimo, Prince Seng, prepared what he could to defend the capital if it became necessary. Chinese negotiators were finally able to get the Allied forces to agree to meet in Tiangxian, halting their advance to Peking. Negotiations began between all parties when something occurred. Parks was riding from Tiangxian to Tianjin to confer with Elgin about negotiations when he noticed Prince Sang's cavalry was massing nearby, hiding behind a cornfield. 
The force was occupying Xiangjiwan, a site promised to the Europeans for their troop lodging. Park suspected it was a trap and went to find a colleague named Locke. Both Parks and Locke were captured by the forces of Prince Yang and taken hostage, eventually imprisoned at the Board of Punishments in Peking, where they were interrogated and tortured until the end of the war. Prince Yang knew a final clash was inevitable, and he began to dig in in Zhang Jiawang. He amassed a three-mile-wide cavalry force serving as a roadblock against the Allies from the capital. Tseng had 20,000 men to defend against the Allied force of 1,000 French and 2,500 British. The Chinese had bows, arrows, and a handful of jingals with some firelock muskets, while the British had Einfield rifles. Tseng's strategy was to encircle the enemy, then go in for the kill, based off of older medieval tactics. On September the 18th, 1860, the Chinese spread out and the Allies immediately took advantage of the enemy's weakened position. General Dumontobin borrowed a squadron of Sikh and Spahi, these are Arab horsemen, from the British and attacked Sang's left flank, while the French infantry assaulted the town of Zhangjiouan. The Sikh and Spahi horses were huge compared to the Mongol ponies, and the Allied cavalry began to penetrate the Chinese troops. The Chinese fired at them with their gingals and their firelocks. However, the French were just obliterating them with the Armstrong field guns. The Armstrong's exploding shells caused such a panic, the Chinese cavalry began to retreat to a nearby river where the Sikhs and Spahis hunted them down. Sang lost 1,500 men during the battle. The Allies lost around 35, which caused a you know, serious defeatist mentality for the Chinese forces at this point. Hope Grant allowed his troops to sack Xiangjiwan, and the general considered it reparations at this point. On September the 21st, the Allies took Tongxian in the flanking movement, spearheaded by the French. The Allied forces then noticed Chinese troops massing up to defend the bridges of Baligiao, which was on its way to Peking. The Anglo-French cavalry skirmished with the Chinese, then began beating them back with artillery. General Bao, who commanded the Chinese forces, sent word to the French that if they continued their attack, they would kill the French hostages that they acquired at the early days of the war, in particular a cleric named Abbé Deluc. De Montauban pressed the attack without hesitation, gunning down the men on the bridge, upon which General Bao killed the hostages. He made do on his word. The Anglo-French cavalry overran both bridges, annihilating the Chinese cavalry, and the infantry shot back in a doomed fashion. Three French died as a result, with over 1,000 Chinese dying in this mismatched battle. Having lost Tongxian and Zhang Jiawan, Prince Tseng now panicked and fled the capital, leaving Peking completely open. Peking's only remaining defense was her thick walls, um, 40 feet high and 60 feet thick, bristling with towers which housed defenders armed with jingals. The emperor had fled to Rihi province with his younger sibling, Prince Gong, left in charge. Prince Gong sent word that the hostages, notably our old friends Parks and Locke, would be beheaded if the Allies assaulted Peking. By October the 6th, 1860, the Allies had massed up a heavy artillery necessary to blast a hole in the walls of Peking. In the meantime, the French and British agreed to march around the city in opposite directions and meet up at the Summer Palace. I guess this was like some kind of competition. Now this is where we get to the most significant part of the story, and this is about the Summer Palace, known in Chinese as Yangming Yuan, the Gardens of Perfect Brightness. These were a complex 
a complex of palaces, and yes, that's plural, which consisted of the Garden of Perfect Brightness, the Garden of Eternal Spring, and the Garden of Elegant Spring. They covered over 860 acres together. These things were so big, they had man-made lakes built in them, which were used for mock naval battles in which the emperor would play war games. There were halls, temples, galleries, pavilions, centuries of artwork, antiquities, vast libraries, and a literal storehouse of silver, gold, and jewels, and other riches. It was centuries of tribute the emperor received from barbarians. The French force made its way to the Summer Palace first, where they were attacked by 500 unarmed eunuchs screaming, Don't commit sacrilege! Don't come in with don't come within the sacred precincts. The French ended up shooting most of them and the rest fled in terror. Uh, the French then began looting the summer palace en masse. One French officer snatched a pearl necklace whose gems were the size of marbles and it sold in Hong Kong for over $3,000. The French by 10 p.m. pocketed as much artwork, jewels, gold and silver they could muster and ran back to their camps. Montauban left two companies of marines to prevent further looting. Um, the British arrived on October the 7th, seeing the French tents filled with jewels and plunder, and the French soldiers were reportedly walking around wearing them. Hope Grant had no hope of stopping his own men, who then began to loot the Summer Palace in a similar fashion. On October the 8th, Hope Grant demanded that de Montauban split all the gold bars they found in the palace equally. Hope Grant then attempted to restore some discipline by ordering a public auction of the surrendered prizes. So the British auction ran from October 11th to the 14th, and each private ended up with about $17, an officer about $50. The French let their men keep what they stole, and interestingly, Baron Rothschild had an outstanding order with one French officer to buy anything he could get his hands on. Elgin finally arrived at the gates of Peking on October the 7th, horrified by the looting, but unable to do anything about it. Once negotiations began, Locke and Parks were transported to Gaomiao Temple in North Peking, where they received excellent treatment compared to the torture and interrogations of the past months. Prince Gong sent word to Elgin that the stat of their status, and Elgin was, you know, in joy because he assumed that they had already been executed. Elgin was obsessed at this point with the fate of all the prisoners under Chinese control, and this greatly influenced his negotiations. At this point, the Chinese used the prisoners as leverage while the Allies held the Summer Palace as their hostage. On October the 8th, Parks, Locke, and diplomatic prisoners were freed as a result of enormous pressure from Elgin. Less than 24 hours after their release, the Allies positioned 13 field guns opposite of Angtung Gate and posted placards threatening bombardment if the gates did not open. It seems that the rest of the prisoners did not matter as much. Elgin gave them until noon of October 24th to comply. The gate opened, Elgin and 500 men marched into the city as conquerors. 19 remaining prisoners were freed, 10 others having died after being forced to kneel in the summer palace courtyard for days without food or water. Their hands had been bound by moistened ropes and leather straps that shrank to cause excruciating pain. After a few more days, the Allies learnt more grisly details of the prisoners' plight. Many prisoners were bound with ropes and chains for days exposed to the elements. Gangrene and infections were rampant amongst the survivors. The fate of the prisoners pushed Elgin 
over the edge, and now he plotted for revenge for all the atrocities. But his revenge would have to be bloodless. Now please bear in mind with me, as this is apparently how Elgin justified his actions. Elgin believed he had to restore British honour through a symbolic and concrete fashion. He knew he could increase the demands of the treaty, but something more needed to be done for the atrocities against the prisoners. Elgin's solution was to cost the Chinese face, but not their lives. He was going to burn to the ground the Summer Palace, one of many places the prisoners had died as a result of being tortured. Elgin's arguments for his actions was that the debauched and ailing ruler, Emperor Xiangfeng, had never taken any responsibility for the atrocities performed on the prisoners. Xiangfeng had lived in a life of subaric luxury, addicted to opium and indifferent to the people's plight, while his Mandarin bureaucracy ran everything. Elgin stated that the people of China would not take revenge for burning of the Summer Palace down, for these were inanimate objects which they never even got to see or enjoy. Elgin saw the punishing of the emperor being a personal one if he did so. To be honest, I find this event is very similar to the burning of the Library of Alexandria. It is an absolute tragedy. Centuries of history were lost while this summer palace was burnt. It is rarely talked about in the West, but has never stopped rankling the Chinese people. Through the nationalist regime and even in the People's Republic today, the ruins have never been fully restored as a reminder of European aggression. On October the 18th, 1860, the burning of the palace began, bringing an end to the Second Opium War. The Treaty of Tianjin was ratified by Prince Gong in June, and it included China formally signing the Treaty of Tianjin, because remember the emperor dodged this, Tianjin becoming an open port of trade, Kowloon to be handed over to Britain, which expanded Hong Kong, freedom of religion to be established in China, British ships to be allowed to continue the disgusting pig trade, British and France to be paid 8 million taels of silver each, and the legalization, yeah, the legalization of the opium trade. <laughs> Prince Gong was given a rare collection of French coins and an autographed photo of Napoleon III and his empress Eugenie Baigro. Elgin was rewarded the vice royalty of India, a position that guaranteed major profits. He unfortunately died only 20 months after to an aneurysm in Kolkata in the same city where Yi died. Kind of symbolic. Emperor Xiangfeng died at the age of 30, only a year after the signing of the treaty. Completely humiliated, he went into seclusion and got himself high on opium, drank wine, and lived with his harem in Rehe. The emperor never returned to the capital and refused to meet foreign ambassadors or his own courtiers. He was so deeply in shame. Prince Zhang continued to suffer military setbacks and humiliations, while putting down a violent tax revolt in Shandong province, Shang led a force of 23,000 against rebels. He was so short on artillery, he began to beg European occupiers to return the guns he had surrendered during the Opium Wars. His pleas were ignored, and the prince failed to suppress the rebellion. He was then demoted, and as a result acquired a salary of $7.5 a day. Queen Victoria received a tribute from the emperor, which was a small dog. The Pekingese breed was bred to resemble the Chinese heraldic lion. She named it Ludi. She also received a jade and gold scepter from Hope Grant, which he obviously looted. 
So just to summarize a rather lengthy episode, the Second Opium War was a product of the Treaty of Nanking, which was signed after the First Opium War. This was very much the same situation we saw in World War II occurring as a result of the Treaty of Versailles after World War I. The terms of the treaty were too humiliating and harsh on the Qing government. Much like the First Opium War of 1839-1842, to the Chinese lost as a result of outdated technology, lack of good leadership, and an overall poorly structured military. There was also many rebellions taking place at the exact same time, such as the Taiping Rebellion, which further weakened the Qing Dynasty's forces. Now, what does all of this have to do with the Pacific War of 1937 to 1945, you might be saying to yourself? The Opium Wars and the Taiping Rebellion, amongst other rebellions, basically destroyed the Qing Dynasty. They were the stab wounds that eventually bled the old empire out, which caused a social revolution to take place in the early 20th century. The grievances of the Second Opium War and the social upheaval of the illicit drug brought something that would never be forgotten by the Chinese. Britain's territorial claims in China as a result of all of this would mean that the British Empire would have to defend these territories when the Japanese attacked during the Pacific War. So this is where it comes full circle. I hope you uh, survived this long. And that's it for the Opium Wars. Uh, like I said, the beginning of the next episode is going to be on the Taiping Rebellion. Uh, so please stay tuned for that as these two events were, uh, they were concurrently happening. Hope you enjoyed this content. If you've not already done so, please leave a like, subscribe, and or a comment below. And most importantly, stay tuned for next episode. This has been the Pacific War Channel. Over and out.